Folks, we're coming out with a new tune. It's called You're Muted. So listen, we will be coming out with a new tune. You're Muted. We've done that all year. Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's a great day right here. I am Yolanda Williams, and this is Your Life, Your Health. Welcome to Your Life, Your Health, which is sponsored by Central Neighborhood Health Foundation. CNHF provides quality patient-centered health care for underserved multi-ethnic communities in Los Angeles, San Bernardino, and Riverside counties. Central Neighborhood Health Foundation is a full-service Medicare-certified health care provider with access points in Los Angeles and San Bernardino counties. Founded in 1967, our guiding principle for nearly five decades has been the efficient and effective delivery of culturally competent care to our patient community. And without further ado, I was going to say something strange, but I think I'll keep it to myself. So without further ado, I bring you none other than the glorious Dr. George Bell, the Outreach Director at Central Neighborhood Health Foundation. He will facilitate your updates and introduce today's guest and also the hot topics for today. So remember, folks, your life, your health. Take it away, Dr. Bell. Thank you, Yolanda. Ladies and gentlemen, we're living in rapidly changing times and the principle of acceleration is in full effect. After more than a year of restrictions, California is now fully reopening its economy. In short, pretty much everything will be allowed to go back to normal, especially if you've been vaccinated. There aren't any requirements uh, and there are no required uh, capacity limits, no physical distancing and much looser mass restrictions. Uh, Businesses can also impose certain rules and require proof of vaccination if they choose to do so. Masks will also still be required in the following settings. If you're vaccinated, masks will be required in any form of public transportation, hospitals, and long-term facilities, indoor, uh, indoors at K through 12 schools and children's facilities, prisons, and homeless shelters, of which we're going to be talking about today a a domestic violence transitional program and also uh, there are again restrictions in certain places workplaces if you're not fully vaccinated so the question is and I dare not ask this with my pistol partner co-host here Yolanda should we stay or should we go now, don't be too radical on today, Yolanda. We have to be well. I will dignified. Try to, I'll try to be dignified, and I I will try to tone it down. Dignified. All always. right. Dignified always. Toning it down. That ain't always gonna happen. Okay. Should we stay or should we go? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kimmy. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. Let me get to that point. Should we stay or should we go? I won't say that I think the reopening is too soon because California, these people just decided they weren't going to follow the protocol that Governor Newsom set forth. Governor Newsom did what he was supposed to do, which was shut the state down. He did all of that the right way. The federal government didn't do what they were supposed to do. Now, having said all of that, if you decide that your economy and your dollars are far greater than human life. Okay, you're going to get what you get. More than 600,000 people gone. So should we stay or should we go? California never stayed. They did whatever they wanted to do. They stayed for a hot minute, but then when they started talking about my restaurant, my people, they're not going to have Christmas money. How about will you have a life? Is that any more important? How about the lives that have been lost who won't really have a Christmas because the lives are lost? How about that? So we've, our humanity 
is just about gone. And remember, there was a woman yesterday that got shot in Georgia because she told a man to put on a mask. And he went out to his car, came back with a pistol and fired on her. And she's gone. And he's gone, too, because the police got him and he's gone for the rest of his life. It was over a mask. You cannot tell me that a mask or not wearing a mask is that important. It's worth a life. Uh, uh, come on. No. Uh, 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 no. Really? Okay. I'm done. <laughs> well, we're at that point now, and I think we're going to yet see dynamics between the pros and cons of the mask. Yes. And uh, oh, the vaccinated and unvaccinated, it almost appears as if um, the unvaccinated will be almost treated as second class citizens, unfortunately. Yeah, they but will. that's another another day. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's all an experiment and we'll take it day by day. Uh, we do live in the United States of America. There are federal uh, requirements, state requirements, county requirements, and uh, we do the best we can to adhere to these protocols. And so uh, let's continue to look at the experiment unfold, and uh, prayerfully, uh, we will reach the full course of this pandemic. And, so you, uh, you know, I'm sorry. You don't think, you don't think that we have? Well, I was listening yesterday and I heard a discussion on that the COVID-19 could uh, begin to uh, act just like, you know, your annual flu virus. Mm-hmm. And so each year we're visited by a, a flu. And so there's the possibility of that. We, we don't know. I don't think any of the scientists know or the healthcare professionals know what this virus is going to do? Will it, re- after it's eradicated or it runs its course, will it return uh, annually like a flu? Will we require a shot uh, just like the flu shot every every year? I mean, okay, nobody knows. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as I often say, and, and you laugh at my little tag statement, we're living in rapidly changing times. Yes, right we are. Nothing, nothing is, I'm here to tell you, nothing is in stone. Uh, everything is changing. There's a, the principle of acceleration. So whether yeah. you like my tag or not, it's true. <laughs> so acceleration, <laughs> are we accelerating for, I think we're accelerating and we're going nowhere fast. We're like in the, in the waiting pool and not able to go anywhere. I think the acceleration has been it's I think it's coming from Uranus and those folks who used to be up on Uranus <laughs> no longer there. You are going off the deep end today. I told you not to be radical. Here you oh, go. Yeah, blasted. You should have caught me. <laughs> well, I, I won't go there, but I was about to. I don't want to take yeah. all the time from our, our beloved guest. So right. I'm gonna give it back to you. Well, I do want to, you know, add another caveat. You, you mentioned the shootings. Mm-hmm. Does it tell you that during this pandemic, uh, it's been uh, a real high number, increased number of shootings, of shootings? because of stress? Yeah. Do you think the number has increased? Yes. I mean, it, we're talking about over yeah. a year and all the shootings that have you know, whether they're police or not, they can be just citizen against citizen. It just seems like violence is, it's increased. It has increased. And I believe it and agree with you wholeheartedly. And our engineer sent man fatally shoots cashier argument. What's there to argue over? People have become, and this goes back to 2020. And you're, you're Reverend Dr. George Bell. I got my DR from WGU. I haven't gotten my REV yet, but I will under your tutelage. Now, having said all of that, people are, there have been significantly more mass shootings in 21 than in 18, 19, and 20. 
And we're just halfway through. We're just halfway through. And it goes back to humanity. We have no humanity anymore. It's not necessary because everybody can go do your thing. And you can't say this to a person. You can't say that to a person. I was looking at Clubhouse yesterday. There is actually a Clubhouse, whatever they're called, meeting, session, group, conversation, where people have have titled this room How to Protect Your how to protect black women against black women. Really? Yeah. Yes. Well, that sounds like Chicago to me. It is Chicago. This is little Chicago. And uh, we can be. Oh, that was a guess. Yes. I just. No, it is. Yeah, it is. It's just as bad as Chicago. But the other part of this in LA is that LA does not like to admit it's dirt. LA does not. These people just don't want to admit their dirt. And there's dirt all over the place. But because we, as Black people, we let folks do what they want to do. We never jump up and say, you know what? We don't want this in our community. We can't do this. We No, we do not. And we then rationalize why we don't. And here it is, 2020. 2021, 2022, we're still asking for permission. Just before we went on, I read something that said the BLM people, uh, the father to the father to uh, one of the, the shooting victims has joined the protest against BLM. He joined the protest, the anti-BLM protest, because people who were supposed to get support from BLM have not gotten the support. So what Patrice did was got a whole bunch of money and went and bought a whole bunch of pieces of property and had a summit out in Laguna Hills that cost $26,000. Yes. So she's getting called on the carpet. (laughs) and you know what folks are looking at that going that's what black folks do that they have no humanity they want to talk about humanity but that's what black folks do okay Yolanda (laughs) you had to wind me up it's your fault (laughs) I'm not going to ask about gun violence or violence again oh my god you got me wound up thank you no, thank you for the comments. I appreciate you. You know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Jerry Seinfeld and Newman, you know. <laughs> Yolanda. <laughs> Look at Kenny. That's not funny. Look at that. Yeah, I'd like to purchase that one, though. Okay, Kenny. <laughs> Is that a AK-47? Uh, I, I AR-15. 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 Yeah. That's what I thought. That's, oh, that's what an we're AR-15. Yeah, I don't yeah. need anything that big. That's okay, well, as tall as I am. All right, thank you for your your uh, comments, and I appreciate you, Yolanda. You know I do. Well, we okay. want to get to our guests, and um, we're going to talk about domestic violence because I would imagine during the pandemic it was said that numbers uh, had increased of incidents and. And we know that DV is one of the most prevalent issues in the United States of America. And previous surveys suggest that approximately 80% of domestic violence victims are female. But check this out. One in three women are victims of domestic violence, but one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by intimate partners. So, we know at least 80% of women. So now we see the other 20% is made up by men that have been victimized as well. And there's some evidence to show that there are more domestic violence victims per capita in California than the national average. So it seems as if California is really struggling with self-control, particularly men um, against women. 
But uh, just to quote a few statistics before we get into our conversation, LASA estimates that in 2016, 46,874 individuals were homeless in Los Angeles County. Mm-hmm. But furthermore, 15% of that population, 7,868 individuals had a history of being physically, sexually um, abused, and I, I would say physically, emotionally, and spiritually uh, yeah. abused, including, uh, you know, you know, it's just really, tra- uh, it's a travesty what people experience during uh, these types of relationships. It's so sad, you know, and I've seen myself uh, by being part of a, a DV uh, transitional facility, I've seen uh, the uh, the effects, and we're mm-hmm. going to talk about that a bit later. But I remember one incident where there was a gentleman stalking uh, his his victim, and so women that experience uh, domestic violence, they're walking on eggshells and looking over their shoulders. And what kind of existence is that? So I want to introduce our guest on to, on today. It's Ronina Thomas. She's the program manager at. Good Neighbors USA uh, Domestic Violence Facility in South Los Angeles. Hello, Ranina. Hello, Dr. Bill. How are you, sir? I'm fine. I'm glad you were able to join us on today. It's uh, my Thank you for inviting me. Oh, and yeah. our host, hello to you, Miss Colette. Uh, yeah. I think she's frozen. I think <laughs> I think Londa <laughs> was just frozen. But anyway, uh, so we're going to talk about the anatomy of domestic violence and uh, what it is. And we know domestic abuse can be defined as a pattern of behavior in any relationship that is used to gain or maintain power and control over a partner. And so that's the anatomy of domestic violence. Someone wants to gain power and control over another person. But then there are, there are levels of domestic violence. And just taking it from the bottom up, there's self-reported emotional, psychological, and physical injuries that uh, don't require immediate medical attention. That's the first level. The second level... Uh, the person or the victim begins to uh, make those emergency uh, visits to the hospital. Thirdly, the, the third stage is hospitalizations. They're battered so bad they require hospitalization. And then finally, domestic violence can lead to death, a homicide. And so uh, we've been in this world for quite some time now. We've seen a lot of different things, Ronnie and I, but um, it's just so sad. Anyone, any man that can brutalize a woman like that, he needs to be tarred and feathered and and then shot. Well, I I don't know if I can say that on the air, but you did already. It's okay. We have a show every Sunday that deals specifically with domestic violence. And when we got into 2020, it absolutely amazed me how many women every single Sunday came to talk about their experience with domestic violence to the tune of women being in the hospital for months, to the tune of guns being drawn on them, guns being put to their head, the kid being uh, abused, I was amazed to hear all of these things. It amazed me. And there's more than you even think. Because I said, I thought we weren't dealing with that anymore. No, it's in the trenches. It is in the trenches. Shine with Shondell. She is a victim of domestic violence. And she has suffered a lot. And she brings in folks every single week. And she brings in men. She brings in men also but more women than men. Of course, of course. But I think there's an unofficial number of men that are experiencing it also. But, um, 
you know, you were talking about the trauma of it, you know, the choking, the strangulation, shaking, you know, there are eye injuries, black eyes, you know, uh, biting, slapping, pushing, spitting, burning, cigarettes, punching, kicking, pulling hair, use of weapons or objects, not just to their their partner, but the children experience hurt as well. So, um, you know, we're going to talk about a subject that is not pretty. This is the ugly side of the United States of America. And of course, uh, in other countries, it's much worse where women are subjugated and considered to be property of men. So uh, through the shelter, uh, we've seen uh, women that have been human trafficked. Ranina, uh, what other women have we seen come through our doors? Um, We've also experienced the LGBTQ community, um, which is a high-ranking domestic violence or intimate partner violence um, population that we service as well. Um, And looking at the statistics that you also reflected earlier, um, a lot of the victims, I would say about 40%, came from a hospitalization um, background through emergency department, some actually fleeing their perpetrator at that time. So um, this community is on the rise. And as you stated, Dr. Bill, not only it happens to women, but also men, we do get those calls and are able to connect them to service providers for men. Um, this, this pandemic has really enlightened our community and our population to have those resources available to house these victims. And it's a scary season and a scary time And um, as a provider, um, we have a lot of cases and a lot of them um, succeed. A lot of them do not succeed. And um, we've had a couple of cases to report um, based on your statistic, Dr. Bill, homicide of them going back. So uh, within our community, we deal with a lot of empowerment um, for that sense of entitlement back of their own power and control of their lives. And that's what it's all about. Um, stabilization, restoration, and then we mobilize them back into a private life when they're secure and responsible enough to maintain uh, the resource networks and also a household, a loving household for their children. Uh, so what are the effects of domestic violence that you've seen over the years now? Um, Well, we do identify the honeymoon phase, and that's mainly when a victim is in between of going back or staying. Um, There's often offer of gifts. Um, I'll change. I'm in a batterer's intervention class, or I'm in an anger management class. So their thoughts are highly affected. Um, Their feelings and emotions of that feel of fear of abandonment or um, not knowing what they're getting to. Mainly a new environment is a scary factor. So within our team, we definitely um, use a whole person care approach and meet them in the middle with realistic um, scenarios regarding DV. And um, mental health is definitely the key aspect of this. A lot of the victims do not feel that it's trauma. And with education and the support of my team, there is increased anxiety that's identified. There's post-traumatic stress um, disorder, depression, high levels of anxiety. It's a ton of things, not um, even before we do a mental health assessment through a referral, there could be some underlying conditions as well mentally that's connected to that um, in addition to a cultural aspect. So um, the effects long-term and short-term are definitely something that a victim would definitely need that support system, um, connection with mental health, therapy, all of that in a nutshell is definitely needed within this community. And I think with the pandemic, it has really paused a lot of those resources available. So a lot of those victims don't have those service connected resources to leave and have that empowerment to say, I can rise from my ashes. Now, that's interesting that you mentioned that during the pandemic, a lot of services were muted. 
I was just having a conversation with uh, Jessica uh, Esquivel in San, Bern- San Bernardino at Lutheran Social Services, or what they call CCLM, which is a mission. And uh, of course, Central Neighborhood a Health Foundation, we're reaching out and we're expanding our outreach in three counties. So in this conversation yesterday with, um, uh, with uh, Jessica, she was saying that during the pandemic, the mental, the county mental health services had stopped taking new or intakes, yes. new patients. And so therefore, the only alternative that many had were to turn to the streets. Uh, if they didn't have a family member that would take them in, uh, you know, that at-risk crew that that's couch surfing, but if they have mental health issues that are, are chronic, uh, more than likely the family is not going to allow them. So, you know, I was just blown away to hear how San Bernardino is treating the mentally ill. And there's just not enough services. There's not enough mental health services. There's not enough housing to house those that are unhoused. So I think we have a systemic issue. Uh, we want to talk about systemic racism and all of that, but we need to talk about systemic <clears throat> deficits and gaps in our social services, in our medical services. This is just unheard of. Uh, so again, that that just really, I was just taken back to hear that a county could turn people away that perhaps had, um, again, maybe some form of schizophrenia, bipolar. These are the worst of the worst, and they're left to fend on their own in the streets, and we're wondering why we have a homeless problem. The same thing in downtown Los Angeles. Okay, I'll get off my my soapbox and let you talk. uh, I I do agree. Um, A lot of the cases that have come across our location um, do have underlying mental health conditions, schizophrenia, um, bipolar disorder, mood disorder. So a lot of them are triggered to, if I can't get help from this social support provider, then I need to go back to my norm. And that's a lot of reason why a lot of um, not only women, but men stay in the environment that they are in. And COVID has um, declined a lot of mental health connections. Um, I can say for us in the beginning stages of the shutdown, um, the mental health component paused. And those ladies that were continuing getting those therapy courses weekly or face-to-face, they had to mentally transition from in-person to via Zoom or via phone. So building that trust with that therapist and having that one-on-one time is another traumatic experience with that person. And again, they're getting back into that mindset, I'm being shut down again. So you can imagine the mindset of a victim of being shut down from their perpetrator. Now I'm connected to a service provider that's providing a ton of resources And the thing that I need the most is the therapy and it's no longer available. So adjusting as a provider, having to um, definitely get connected to get those different resources where they're able to have connected Zoom classes. Um, What are some other outlets for therapy? And those particular things, even though it wasn't available during the pandemic, um, we do have people on site that are able to advocate and reach out to Department of Mental Health and say, hey, our community needs help. Um, Do you have alternative methods for our community? And um, with some of those challenges, we were able to connect. A lot of them we did have to push with a lot of encouragement internally, but um, COVID has really put a damper on this community in the DV community um, and mental health. Sure. Would you say that's been an increase in the number of intakes during yes. COVID-19? It's more women and children, which is scarce. Um, we started off with a lot of single women coming in, and um, a lot of them come in because of association with their children being t- taken in custody 
due to the domestic violence environment. And then also uh, women coming in with their children with nothing in their hand. So we have had a rise in our numbers. Um, Some we had to transfer to other DV providers with hopes that they can place them. But there is a shortage of beds in this community that needs to be definitely addressed economically. So was the shelter impacted by COVID-19? Were there any uh, participants in the program that actually contracted the virus? We actually had two cases and um, thank God they are well and alive and have tested negative since then and live normal lives. But um, we did take a lot of safety precautions. We were um, advised through CDC of different um, housing changes. So not being able to allow them to share a room with another family or another single person. So that did impact the numbers, but we want to make sure we were precautious to the spread. So we upped our level of cleanliness. We upped our level of connecting them to get tested. We actually connected with the local church, which was down the street from our location where they were able to get tested and provide that proof to give that surety that um, they're not positive. So um, we also connect with Central Neighborhood Clinic and they were able to come on site and do some testing, not only for our residents, but for staff as well. And I think providing those resources in-house definitely gave them a lot of um, relaxed anxiety, although they're dealing with their trauma. So kudos to Central Neighborhood. We definitely appreciate you. Well, thank you. That's what Central Neighborhood is all about. Uh, We serve uh, those that are underserved, and uh, that's been part of the mission for over 50 years. And so uh, we were glad to come there, and I was able to come, I think, once or twice myself and be part of that testing. But uh, there was a lot of pushback on the vaccinations, weren't there? Yes, there were. We actually had um, several opportunities to have um, different clinics to come on site or different avenues for clients to get the vaccine. A lot of them were uh, pushing away and um, because there was a rapid growth in people that wanted to get vaccine and people coming from different counties that were not a part of our local community or our service planning area that kind of put our community and our population on the bottom. So it was more of the first hundred people served, then you can get vaccinated. So just imagine someone in a domestic violence situation and they're already cautious of going out. So here's a service provider that again, pushing them away, puts them back in that mindset. So um, I'm grateful for the opportunity that some of those barriers have expanded But also, like we said earlier, there is a lack of resources within this community. Yes, I know. Well, we we, as Central Neighborhood Health Foundation, we, again, uh, stand to partner with uh, Good Neighbors USA, domestic violence, transitional housing, and we'll always be there for you. Um, So... At this point, we've kind of covered, you know, the precautions, the protocols and things like that um, and things you've done to mitigate the spread of COVID within the shelter. Now, let's talk a little bit about the shelter and maybe you can just share a bit about uh, the dynamics within a transitional housing uh, facility again. And we're looking at, um, again, a certain affect you know, what I mean by that is you're having women that have been traumatized and children in a closed setting. And I would imagine that there were some dynamics that are, that really occur in that kind of setting. Can you just share a little bit about some of the dynamics? And we know that there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. So uh, let's talk about, because I had to come over a couple of times and sit down with the ladies. You know, I don't come there very much, but it necessitated me to come and sit down with the ladies and uh, and I heard some issues. So what is it like, especially with this COVID charging? It's just charging the emotions. It's highly charged. I think um, based on the survey with my team, a lot of the emotions 
and the trauma of sharing an environment is top um, topic right now. And the pandemic and not being able to get out of the four walls has really elevated. Um, mainly what we do is we provide a lot of support. Um, we definitely connect them within the first 30 days. What are your emergency needs? What are your um, short-term goals? What can we do right now in the moment that you need? So whether it's an ID, whether it's a birth certificate, social security, because they will need those things going forward. Um, and within that housing program, we were afforded to connect with the McKinney and Vento program that provides free vouchers for birth certificates, as well as um, DMV to provide free identification car, um, applications for our victims to definitely have connections for. Um, but within that environment, it's mainly the support to believe in them and to believe that they can be better than where they are. Um, the housing assistance program definitely is an avenue to permanent housing and we look at it as, as a vehicle. We're in the vehicle with you. Where do you want to go? And what do you want to see within the next 30 days? What do you want to see within the next 30 days after that? Long term, how do you feel about permanent housing? Are you ready to move forward in the dynamics of your independence? So we definitely stay on that one-on-one level with our clients and be realistic with them. What does it take for independence? And a lot of the moments are scary. A lot of them do backpedal because they're not known to be independent. Some of them are not known to be independent. Some of them, um, the male factor was the breadwinner and stepping out on a limb is challenging. So we definitely coach them through that process. And we've had some successions. We've had some reunifications with children and mom. Um, and then we have some that did return to that community. And it's basically our, our whole uh, mindset is what is safe for you. And I think a lot of the challenges within this community is um, we can define safe to someone, but they have to really believe what's safe to them. And I think giving them the power of choice allows them to take back that power of control of their lives. Yes, that's very important. Um, uh, many of them have been victimized for so long. They've lost that um, trust. Uh, it's, they have to work their way up and out of a certain way of thinking. Correct. Yeah, it's a very um, um, fearful. It's definitely emotional. Definitely emotional. And um, we, our staff is definitely trained with transparency of emotions um, because we've had, as we stated earlier, we've had the worst. Well, we wouldn't say the worst, but we've had bad scenarios where. Oh no! Let's go all the way back to the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. A client where she came in, head was shaved by her abuser, uh, two full black eyes, broken ribs, and pretty much limping in the door. And uh, broken arm, one broken arm. We have someone from the LGBT community, and her partner literally broke her arm. Yes. So if we go back and we look at some of the things that the ladies have suffered, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, it's highly charged with uh, emotional baggage. Correct. And yeah. So can, can you share any scenarios? I, I know I just shared one or and any, because I remember <laughs> we, we don't do it as much now, but there were times when we would have to call the police to come in. Oh, yeah. And, you know, disengage. Oh, yeah. Disengage. Uh, conflicts where obviously one of the ladies, they're losing control. Yeah. Um, you have any um, thoughts? We have or- scenarios. Uh, I can put it in the hat and say pick one. Um, we've had um, situations where, um, of course, we encourage our clients to definitely utilize restraining orders. So rather it's an emergency protective order that's issued by the police department, um, the temporary restraining order, which our staff is trained to definitely walk them through that process to the permanent re- uh, restraining order. We found that with the, with that particular document, 
police respond a lot faster. Unless that person is in intimate danger where there's a weapon involved, um, they will not respond. And it's sad to say the community that we live in, that is a definite challenge for our community. Um, But we've had scenarios where um, internally there were, you know, we discovered they were a couple and um, within the, within the location, the Mm -hmm. person that was the aggressor was pretty much cabinetsing everyone that's there trying to pick up hit on and their partner basically got mad and um actually they had a physical fight and we have a non-hostile bully-free environment so we definitely separated the two got each side and um came to a medium eventually Things got heated and we actually had to get them escorted off because it became a a matter of safety concern. So that's just one scenario internally. But we did have one scenario um, where the abuser actually followed her from the train station to our location. And for the life of me, we could not get that abuser to leave, regardless of how many times we called law enforcement. Um, we provide a description, we took photos, and it took forever for them to get them, the, per- the person. But eventually, um, we were able to, to get him away from the facility where we were able to transfer her to a whole nother um, city. So um, there are times where law enforcement is definitely um, needed. And then there are times where we are able to coach the client regarding safety and regarding confidentiality and what's best for them in the moment. Um, many of them will go back. Many of them are undecided and just undecided if they want to go back. And many of them want to move forward with hopes to be alive. So we definitely give those realistic scenarios to the client to let them know that they can make it past escaping, which is day one, once they walk into our facility. What is a a restraining order? A restraining order is an emergency protective order. So mainly when an incident happens, um, police is called out. There's a dispute as we define what domestic violence there may have been, an argument which elevated to a fight physically, which may have elevated to property damage or so forth. Within that, whoever is identified as the abuser Um, the victim actually has an option to be protected. So that document protects their person wherever they go and wherever they're they're housed. So a restraining order is simply a piece of paper. Correct. And the restraining order goes to the abuser and a copy of it stays with the victim. Correct. The overarching, however, is that if the abuser is the right kind of abuser, a restraining order is not going to stop. Correct. And we do, we have had some scenarios with, it's just a piece of paper. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. They don't work. Yeah. A lot of times there is just a piece of paper and he takes it and just crumbles. Correct. Correct. We've had, we've had cases where we had to transfer immediately and shut down our facility for safety because that appeared to be, a piece of paper in their eyes, but in the eyes of the law, it's a quicker response time for them to show up to our location. So it, it does have its wins, but it also in the, the eyes of, a, of an abuser, who can stop me? Yeah, I've me, done it for you for all this time. Yeah. Who can stop yeah. me? So it's a matter of, of power. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Let, while we're here on the legal issues, you know, uh, what, would, what would you say the lag time um, for the police? Now, you mentioned that if there's a restraining order or a protective order, they're more readily to come out. But uh, what's the longest in calling the police? Someone is acting out, even becoming violent. What was the longest duration of time that you guys have ever experienced before the police came out? Um, we've actually had, I would say that depending on the severity of it, and if there's a weapon involved, the response time is within 15 or 20 minutes. Um, if there is no weapon involved, we've seen an hour, two hours, 
the re- the remainder of that day. And it's it's a sad situation when that person is in, in intimate danger and our location is in intimate danger. So um, we do have um, with our service provider leader, which is um, which has connection with the police department, we do have different coalition meetings to express the need for response. Um, in our past experience, that's considered low barrier and it's unfortunate, but unless you say that this person has a weapon or has, um, is on site to actually physically do that, they will not respond right away. And it's, it's a sad situation. Okay. So, um, you know, let's just move on just a bit. Our time is pretty much, um, it's moving rapidly. So what kind of program uh, are you offering the ladies? I know that uh, you're working with two um, entities. One is state and one is um, county that's funded through the federal government. So how? what is a housing assistance program? Because that's what we do after the women are stabilized and they're ready to move out. We place them in their own permanent housing. And what's what's the uh, uh, first of all? What's the requirement? And secondly, um, uh, how does that work? They do have to be enrolled into our program. Um, we do a, an assessment within the first two weeks to find out where they are. Do you have income? Do you have emergency income? Do you have emergency needs? Um, do you have a means of getting stable income that way once we move into that housing phase talk will you be able to sustain your own living after our subsidy um, is has ended so within that first 30 days our case manager works very intensely to get them connected mentally to therapy um, if there are any underlying conditions different coping skills and therapists and sometimes medication um, their identification, their children's identification, um, when it comes to um, clients want to go back to work or to get into the job market, do you have assistance with childcare? So connecting with childcare providers to have all of these barriers eliminated where they can be successfully independent by working. Um, In addition to that, we do phases of progress and we do definitely an acknowledgement by Um, sponsoring a gift card or sponsoring different things just to let them know that um, your progress is definitely much valued. Um, They use that as motivation. And once we get them into that housing phase, meaning that their, their income is stabilized, they're working, they're making a decent amount of income. Then we connect them to different landlords. What does that look like being independent in your own living space? Have you ever been in that? Are there some anxieties with that? So we meet them in the middle and we we house them when they're ready. Mental health is definitely um, a topic because the anxiety level of being on your own in your own environment is something that they have to graduate in. So a lot of them come in um, ready to transition and a lot of them once we get to that stage. I'm scared. Um, what does that look like? I'm used to my batterer taking care of everything. So we definitely coach them through that. Um, we definitely show them a financial structure. What is budgeting? What is taking care of bills? And we look at the whole person care approach. You know, are you going to be able to pay for food? Well, there's food stamps available through Department of Public and Social Services. Um, what are different transportation needs that you have? What are your goals? We set them up, set them up with a in-service um, savings plan. And um, if I can disclose, <laughs> we actually had some successes where clients have saved almost half of, um, I would say up to $6,000 within our program. And um, we encourage them, you know, this is for you. If something ever happens, you have something to fall back on. So, so to successfully go with them through that process with our case managers on that second phase, looking at units, how do you feel? How are you in the moment? Can you see yourself here? Can you see yourself growing in here? Um, Is this a good space for you? Is this a good fit away from being scared of being by yourself? Because now reality sits in. I'm independent. 
Now I'm going into housing. So we make it real. And once we get them connected, we go through the housing application process. Um, and then we get them connected with our um, rapid rehousing funds to rental assistance. So our rental assistance program will accommodate um, six months up to a year of rental payment. But during that time, we do create a structure for the client. Okay, hey, we are definitely accommodating your rent, but we do advise you to save just in case, you know, going forward, you have some major expenses and that they're able to continue their livelihood after we severed that relationship, but yet still having connection with resources. So it's a, we, I can say about 60% of the clients that we do service have succeeded that um, path. And a lot of them, like we said earlier, they do go back and a lot of them call and asking, can I come back? Can I start again? So we, we meet them in the moment and wow. um, our program is very highly effective and um, I'm grateful to be a part of it. Oh, were we uh, were we recently recognized by LASA? We are. We are the leading rapid rehousing as, agency. Yes. As what kind of facility? I mean, uh, you actually presented. And I did. They asked, and so they asked for our facility to present. Why? Um, they saw the succession behind it. A lot of. Um, Speaking with our team, a lot of the barriers that I, I've come across within this community is the homeless community as a whole, just looking out, you know, outside of DV is quickly housing folks without a plan. And because we created a plan with the client, they're able to succeed and stay in housing. So um, our um, funder, which is LASA, and um, have definitely granted us the privilege to expose our process and how is it working? What are the pitfalls? What are the barriers? What can we do to support? What can we do more of? Um, can you share some of your training manuals? Can you share some of your systems? And um, I can say that some of the providers do call us often and ask, hey, what would you do in this scenario? Or um, have you came across this particular situation? What should we do? So it, it, it is exciting and rewarding that we created a program that is working. And like we said, as long as we're meeting the client in the moment and they're making the decision for themselves while we're coaching and not telling them, because telling them put them back in that traumatic mindset, but showing them how to take charge allows them to grow. So, yeah, Good Neighbors has been a great, great asset to our DV population. <laughs> So where can someone go that's escaping uh, from domestic violence to get help? What are the avenues that they could take to get help? Um, we do have connection um, nationally because this is a national crisis. Um, the National Domestic Violence Hotline has a website. You can actually call 1-800-799-SAFE and that line is definitely available to all who call. They actually have a chat um, room available and a text option available. So there are different means, even our um, deaf and mute community, um, that resource is available for them. And then if they are looking for um, a location in particular, we do have referral system as well. And we can be reached at 323-763-2865. Why don't you give that number again? Sure, it's 323-763-2865. Okay, and then also, uh, if they call 211. Uh, yes, we're 211 would actually help them to connect to um, different service providers. Um, we are within that first five calls. Um, and that's based on our transitioning time, which is awesome. But we also have a network and community that we can definitely connect them to should we not have a bed available for them. Okay. Well, we appreciate you joining us on uh, this afternoon, Ronina. I, I know the, the shelter is doing great work. It's saving lives, empowering women, and providing safety for children. Uh, what I do want to do before we close out the show, 
uh, on our social media, Central Neighborhood Health Foundation, uh, Facebook and Instagram, we are posting job positions and uh, for the listening audience, if uh, you're looking to return to work or you are experienced in um, the areas that we're hiring, we're hiring outreach workers. Uh, however, there is a need to uh, have experience in marketing and we're also hiring housing navigators. And so there's a need to uh, know the landscape of the housing continuum of care in Los Angeles County. So I wanted to add those again. Uh, we we want to use all of our social medias, even this podcast, to inform people that Central Neighborhood Health Foundation is an agency of empowerment. And we want to hire from our community people that are experienced, knowledgeable, and committed to uh, serving the community. So again, thanks, Ronina. Appreciate you. Uh, we'll have you back soon to give updates. And uh, so it's on you, Yolanda. Okay, okay, okay. Great show. And thank you, Ronina. That was good information. And I did enjoy that. As you can see, I could, there was a lot of information that's not only scary, it's mind-blowing, mind-blowing. So good work. And good luck and God bless all of you and especially the people that you care for. Awesome. Thank you for being a part. Appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And as I said, I'm going to tell Shondell Wilhite about you because she does the show every Sunday and it's on domestic violence. So I'm also a survivor as well. And that's what pretty much gives me the passion to do what I do. Right. One question before I let you go. How does this impact domestic violence when it comes to elders? Is this part of, okay. Yes, we've actually serviced um, our our senior community um, up to the age of 66. And um, it is definitely real. Domestic violence is not only just intimate partners, but it's also family um, it does impact culturally. We actually had a couple of um, ladies that were a part of a cultural um, environment where abuse was very accepted. And being out of that environment and being able to peddle by yourself is very scary. And knowing that the power in that community can either break you or push you out. So um, elderly abuse is definitely on the rise, definitely within um, not only the homeless community, but we do often get calls from hospitals where mm. maybe the perpetrator is a bit younger mm. and um, more taken advantage income wise. Mm. Financial abuse is definitely a part of that network for um, domestic violence. So wow. a lot of our elderly are definitely impacted because of scams, because of being vulnerable and not having that family support to uh, guide them and protect them. So as a service provider, we definitely have that avenue to service them as well as teenagers. Mm, Wow. That is just so incredible. And as I have said since last year, man's inhumanity to man, it, it just won't quit. It just won't quit. And I believe wholeheartedly that we are in times when the universe is staying. Uh, your inhumanity is just over the top. Absolutely. Over the top. So again, it was great to have you on and Dr. George is waiting for me to get to the end of this. So you have been listening to Your Life, Your Health sponsored by Central Neighborhood Health Foundation with main offices located at 714 West Olympic Boulevard in Los Angeles, Suite 801 at 90015. And for additional information, you can visit our website at cnhfclinics.org or you can go to info info at cnhfclinics.org. And please don't forget the social media sites. And that is Central Neighborhood Health Foundation at facebook.com and cnhf underscore clinics at Instagram. 
And just a few announcements. Don't forget the Coachella, Coachella, Coachella Valley location. And also the COVID-19 testing is continuing with vaccines in both places. Central Clinic, Monday through Thursday, 10 a.m. till 1 p.m. The Inglewood Clinic, Monday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. And please that's uh, testings and vaccination. Testings and vaccination. And don't forget. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. I saw Paul. Oh, okay. Okay. Good, good, good. The food pantry is on the first and third Mondays of each month at 1030 a.m. And that's located at Grand Avenue, the South Central Clinic at 2614 South Grand Avenue, Los Angeles. 90007 and you have been listening to Your Life Your Health with Dr. George Bell. Come on back don't forget every month every first and third Monday at 4 o'clock and first and third Tuesday with us this I'm sorry every Tuesday at 4 o'clock and thank you for being (laughs) with us and we have a guest the guitarist extraordinaire None other than Mr. Paul Jackson Jr., who is the guest on Change Matters this afternoon. Folks, and we are ripping, roaring, ready to go. We are continuing with Black Music Month. Join the show right here, itrnradio.com. I'll see you all. Bye-bye. See you later, George. Thank you, Marina.